0: Welcome back everyone to another episode of the Georgia Music Teachers Association podcast. My name is Bebe Lin, Vice President of Membership with GMTA. Today, I finally get to meet someone I've known peripherally. I've seen his name at various conferences, not just locally, but nationally. And I'm embarrassed to say that although we're both from Georgia, we haven't had a chance to meet before now. But as they say, better late than never. So today I'm happy to be speaking with Tom Pearsall and let's not delay that any longer. Hello, Tom. Let's get started with a background question. Tell me about what you do and how you got to where you are today.
1: I am a professor of music at Georgia Southern University in Statesboro. I've been here since 1993. So I'm about to start year 30 in a couple of weeks. I teach the group piano classes and I also teach piano pedagogy to the piano majors, which is you know classes on teaching piano, how to teach piano. And I also have a small studio, private studio on the side. Came here from the University of Oklahoma. That's where I finished up my doctorate. Uh, like I said, I started here in 1993. Tell me about how you got started in music. How I got started in music. Believe it or not, I still remember a girl named Barry Webster. I joined the band in seventh grade playing clarinet. And I did not yet play piano, got a late start. And um, she was playing the Greek A minor concerto. She'd sit down and play the beginning of that. And I was like, oh my gosh, I want to learn how to do that. And it just got me really interested in the piano. And like I said, I had started the clarinet that year in band. So those were kind of the things that kick-started my interest.
0: Yeah. At what point did you start piano lessons then? Because obviously you're not a clarinet professor, you're a piano professor. I know.
1: I actually did not start piano until I think I was 13. I was in eighth grade, so I am an unusual late bloomer. I did teach myself for a year, Starting in seventh grade, I taught myself for a year before I got a teacher. And then I finally started the lesson in eighth grade. I think I was 13.
0: So it's interesting to hear that you're self-taught because nowadays we do have a lot of pianists who are self-taught because we have tools like YouTube. I'm assuming that YouTube did not exist back then. This was the early 1970s. Yeah, this
1: was the early 70s. Nothing like that was around yet. We didn't have internet or anything.
0: So what resources did you use in order to teach yourself how to play piano?
1: Well, I I had been learning treble clef in band uh, for the clarinet, and my older sister had had some piano lessons prior to me taking lessons, and so there were some piano books in the bench, and uh, Michael Aaron, and I just took myself through the books, and I remember the whole first book, I could only play hands separately, and how frustrating it was trying to learn the bass clef. And after I'd gotten through most of the book, hands separately and struggling with the bass clef, I finally got, went back near the beginning and was able to play the first song, Hands Together. To this day, I can still play it and I still remember it. It was a song called The Swing, I got really excited. But I actually progressed fairly quickly because a year later, when I finally found a teacher, I had taught myself the familiar part of "For Release." by Beethoven and I had gotten that far and could play through all that on my own hands together. So I just taught myself out of the books and the piano bench, self-learned, yeah.
0: Yeah, how was that transition from being self-taught to having formal lessons? Because for us as teachers, we're frequently on the other side of it. We encounter a student that comes into our studio is self-taught and so then we have to fill in some of the holes, but you experienced probably both sides of that as a student who did that transition, and then also as a teacher who might see some students coming out of that?
1: Well, I still remember when I first met my first teacher, and I played the fur Elise for her that I had taught myself to play, and that I told her I'd been teaching myself for a year. She was very impressed, but I still remember her saying, we're going to have to work on those flat fingers of yours, and so I had just taught myself to play with flat fingers, and I, I remember I, was really, I really struggled to change my hand position that that took some time to fix and that was the main thing I remember that she had to kind of correct that I had taught myself incorrectly
0: yeah. yeah so speaking of teachers do you have a favorite memory of your teachers that you can share
1: I do can I briefly go down each teacher sure. uh you want just one my first teacher, the interview, of course, was a, a fond memory. She was like, oh, my gosh, you could be a concert pianist. I can't believe you've done this in one year, blah, blah, blah. And she also had this thing that was published by John Sham called Astronaut 88. And it was a paper keyboard. I mean, a paper, you put it over your head, and then it covered the keys. And it had like a little astronaut thing drawn on it, and it was so that you would cover your fingers so you couldn't look while you were playing. So that's what she used to help me learn to not look down at my hands while I played. That was in Virginia. My second teacher in Kentucky introduced me to classical music, Bach, Beethoven, all of that, which at first I really resented. I had just been playing sheet music and out of method books. and I'd never tried to play Bach or Mozart or anything like that. But she really gave me the tools I needed to get ready for college as a piano major. And then her husband was my professor for my undergraduate at the University of Oklahoma. I'm about to let out a bad word here, because one day I used to play with my shoulders up really high. I was really tense. And he was trying to using humor. He was pushing down on my shoulders. Relax, damn it. Relax. He was just trying to be funny, you know, but the point was, you know, get my shoulders down. That really stuck to this day. We had a good laugh. It did kind of help me to relax. And then my my teacher from my master's at Bowling Green State in Ohio spent an entire lesson on like the first three measures maybe of the Chopin Barker roll because I had not learned how to just kind of float from one position on the keys to the other, even as a graduate student. And at the time, it was really frustrating that she spent an entire hour on these three measures, but it turned out to be, of course, really, really helpful. And then Ed Gates was my professor at the University of Oklahoma for my doctorate. And not only was he a wonderful pianist, but I remember uh, classes with on him with Beethoven. He just had a way of We didn't just analyze and look at sections and harmony and all that. He just had a way of bringing the music to life in a way that just got everybody in the class so passionate about his music. So those are some of my favorite memories.
0: So speaking of memories and walking down memory lane, do you remember what piece from your musical studies as a child got you hooked on music?
1: Well, believe it or not, that first, play, that first piece, Hands Together, just got me so excited. Of course, that was something really, really simple, as well as learning the Fur Elise. And, you know, and I had taught that to myself, and I just that was just so exciting to me, to be able to do that. And then this isn't quite, I think, what your question is, but not something I had learned, but I used to check out what we call records back in the day, from now it's called vinyl, I guess, from our public library. And there was a recording of Philippe Entremont playing the Chopin Four Ballades. And I've never heard anything so amazing and so beautiful and so gorgeous in my life. And I just kept checking that record out over and over. And I just kept listening to it over and over and over again. And I was like, oh, my gosh, if I could ever play, play one of those someday, you know, it, w- it just really inspired me a lot.
0: Yeah. So I'm curious when you're looking through those records, I mean, something must have captured your attention to draw you towards Chopin. I, I would imagine a young child go, gravitating towards like the popular music section, but obviously you were somehow in the classical music section. Was, was this something that was just in your realm? Because you you talked about your second teacher, I think, that introduced you to classical music and there was a bit of resentment, but you were obviously browsing and listening to classical
1: music on your own I was but the Chopin you know when she started me on Bach and stuff like that I was like oh this is hard this is boring I just don't like this stuff at Mozart of course now I love all of that and really have an appreciation for it but the Chopin was just so gorgeous and so so beautiful and I was kind of a geek I mean I didn't listen to a lot of popular music at the younger age. Actually, I listen to a lot now. I listen to more popular than I do classical, but I wasn't listening to a lot of popular music uh, in junior high school. Uh, and I was really into the, the Chopin. And that Chopin was a name I certainly
0: had heard um, and was
1: familiar with. So.
0: so tell me, tell me what was practicing like for you as a child? Did your parents have to force you to do it or were you self-motivated?
1: Oh no, they did not have to force me. I mean, now we did have an
0: old, old piano. It was a real
1: tall, upright, painted white. It was, it was a Llewellyn. Have you ever heard of that brand? Probably not. And some of the keys were broken and didn't work. And the piano tuner told us that the piano was so old he could not tune it up to standard pitch. And when my first teacher came by our house to check out my instrument in person, she was absolutely horrified <laughs> and said, you must try to get this student a better piano. This is, a, this is not a good instrument for him to be trying to learn and practice on. But I mean, I, I was very self-motivated. Like I said, I taught myself for a year and moved really quickly and then couldn't wait to get a teacher, so.
0: So tell me about your family's relationship with music.
1: I'm the only musician in my immediate family. Um, I have an older sister and two other brothers. My older sister is the only one that ever also took piano lessons. She did not have, sorry, if you hear my dogs barking back there, she did not have much talent for piano and she just took it for a few years. And actually my, my mom and dad used to tell me, you know, we'd ask you every year if you'd like to take some piano lessons. And I was always like, nah, not interested. So uh, and then my two brothers did both play trumpet in band while I was playing clarinet, but they didn't stay with it for very long. So that's pretty much it. It was just my sister took a little bit of piano.
0: Yeah. Then that leads us to the question. Why are you a musician and a teacher? Was there someone who was particularly influential in guiding you to this path?
1: Well, I think my first teacher, just just taking lessons, I was just so excited to be learning. And that just got me really motivated to keep practicing and getting better and better. I just, once I started the piano, I just loved it. I just loved it. You couldn't, you, it's funny because like I just said, growing up, I just didn't have any interest in it. But once I started it, it was just like a bug. And I just, I just loved it.
0: So that's really interesting because this account of being asked as a younger child whether or not you want to take lessons and then no, no, no. And then, you know, you, you discover it and then you fall in love with it. Do you ever wish that you had started earlier? Is there any sense of regret or what if or are you happy with how things turned out? And maybe it was just waiting for that time and that age in your life for everything to click.
1: On the one hand, I mean, this may be blasphemous, but I am not one to sort of push people to take lessons and I'm not one to advocate for pushing them to stay in lessons. I'm just not real big on that. And and I think it was good for me to not start until I wanted to start. But, I mean, I do sometimes think, you know, if you had started earlier, I mean, to this day, I mean, I got a doctorate, I can play, you know, I can deal with advanced music. But I have some technical limitations that I think would not be there if I had started at a younger age. Uh, And so I'm always like, you know, you probably could be, you could probably handle this technical stuff a little bit better if you had started at a younger age.
0: I I think your story can be very encouraging to some of our younger listeners who did start a little later in life and realize that music can still be a path and a career choice for them. And they can be successful, you know, just following your footsteps starting at age 13 doesn't mean that it's too late. It's not.
1: I mean, I I
0: guess I'm living proof of that. (laughs) So let's talk about teaching. How do you approach teaching? What is your teaching philosophy?
1: Well, first of all, if I was to describe my teaching style in one word, it would be chill. I, I am not a strict or demanding teacher. I'm very laid back. And my, my, my big goal with all of my students is to either light that fire for a love of music or to keep it burning and to just keep them really enjoying music. And then whatever whatever their goals are, are, are what I try to help them meet. And I've always been too. like, you wanna teach the students that you feel you're best suited to teach. Like I, I don't feel really comfortable working with preschoolers. So I, ha- I haven't taken preschoolers in many years. But other, you know, and I, I'm not real good at if you just wanted to learn how to play a lot of popular music. I'm not the best teacher for that. I'm not as well suited for that. So I think knowing your knowing your target audience and who you're best suited to work with. But other than that, I'm happy to take any age, any talent, you know, any talent level and just help them achieve their goals and just keep them really enjoying music. Yeah. yeah.
0: Sometimes students come to us with a goal and their goal is like really high achieving, like reaching for the stars. But then perhaps their understanding of the amount of work it takes to reach there is not, how do I say, grounded in reality perhaps. Right,
1: oh yes.
0: What do you do about that?
1: I try to be as positive, positive, but transparent as possible. I don't think we do them any favors by giving them false hopes or mislead them as to how quickly they'll be able to accomplish what. I think it's super important to help them clearly see if these are your goals, this is what it's going to take and it's not going to happen very quickly or without a lot of work. You know, and I've had adult students that are beginners that are wanting to you know be able to play hymns in six months and I'm like, Mm. <laughs> no it ain't gonna happen <laughs> you know? so I think you have to be realistic and you have to be honest while also trying to be as positive and encouraging as you can
0: okay I appreciate that uh, do you have passions and hobbies outside of music and teaching
1: I do I have my dogs I've always I've had like a couple of dogs for many many years now I'm on dogs three and four right now some of them were barking a few minutes ago I'm real big on fitness. I've been like lifting weights for like over 40 years and cardio and all that. So I'm real big on exercising, and uh, working out at the gym, riding my bike. I love to ride my bike. I was really surprised. I mean, I'm in my 60s and I did four hours on my bike recently. So I was like, yay me. So I'm pretty avid with fitness. I follow politics a lot. I don't discuss it with people very often because it can be so uh, divisive but I have been involved and done done some volunteer work with some political organizations in the past. And uh, I also love reading. I don't read as much as I used to, but I still love to read. And for years and years, I've devoured a lot of fiction and nonfiction. And I also really enjoy working out in my yard. Um, And in the summer, spring and summer, I love to put out lots of plants and flowers and mulch and make it look really nice and pretty. So I enjoy spending time in my yard as well.
0: You enjoy being active and really busy. yeah
1: busy. Yeah. I do, I do, yeah.
0: Yeah, all right, this is our very last question. Tell me about okay. your time in GMTA and MTNA. How did you hear about the organization and what has being part of this organization meant to you?
1: Well, when I moved here in 1993, I mean, I was already aware of MTNA and so I knew there was gonna be a state affiliate for GMTA, and I think I went to their, probably my first year here in 93, I went to the state conference, started meeting a lot of great people. The biggest thing for me that GMTA has been just the network of people. I mean, I've met so many wonderful people and, you know, it's also, you know, competitions for my students to play in conferences, to attend, blah, blah, blah. But just getting to know and meet a lot of amazing teachers uh, has been the biggest thing for me. I did, I said, I thought this question was going to come up and I had to look because I said, I can't, but I I was on the board for 12 consecutive years. I stayed on, I was on the board for quite a long time. I started in 1996 and went through as, I was started as a member at large and an auditions grade chair. And then I was the VP for GMTA auditions and then the VP for publicity. And then I became president-elect, which was very scary. And then I became president, which was even scarier, (laughs) but it was great. And then of course I was past president, immediate past president served on the finance advisory committee, if they still call it that. So I was on the board from 1996 to 2008. So I I went to lots of meetings, um, and I loved being on the board and interacting with so many wonderful teachers. So going to the conferences and stuff.
0: Yeah. On the national level, you serve as some sort of advisory or organizational member for the group Piano Piano Pedagogy Conference as well. Can you tell us a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, uh, it's called the National Group Piano and Piano Pedagogy Forum. And the nickname is GP3 because G for group and then three P's, piano, piano pedagogy. So we call it GP3. And I've actually been on the executive committee that sort of is charged with planning the conference for 20 years. And I'm currently co-chairing that committee and, and as you know we have a conference coming up in Tucson they put in a plug for you because you will be presenting there and I'm looking forward to your presentation in a few weeks. So yeah I've been on that committee for 20 years and we affiliated with mtna maybe 10 12 years ago I forget the exact year and so now it's been a, a collaborative effort with mtna it's been it's been a great relationship.
0: Yeah, I didn't realize that. I didn't realize that. It sounds like this group kind of grew out independent of MTNA and then joined MTNA. Is that is that we, what I'm saying?
1: We did. Now, the very first year, I wasn't on the committee yet. I and mean, then I got on board after the first conference. And some of my fellow committee members, some of the original founders are still on the committee. And they just started this first one on their own. I mean, kudos to them for all the amazing amount of legwork that was required to just establish and start a new national conference. And so when I came on board after the first conference, all that initial legwork had been done. But before we affiliated with MTNA, you know, we had to do all the legwork ourselves and, you know, put up a website ourselves and put everything out there. I mean, it was a huge amount of work. And we did it on our own for quite a few years. Um, And then MTNA, I believe, approached us. About kind of becoming a program of MTNA, and then they give us a lot of help and a lot of assistance
0: and do a lot
1: for us that we used to have to do ourselves. Yeah, it's been a great relationship.
0: So I realize I said we were on our last question about three questions ago, but I still have one more question about this. Since you obviously have taught a career of um, group piano and you're on this board for a group piano conference. Do you see any trends or changes in how group piano is taught or understood in the last 30 years? How, how, how is it different today from where it was 30 years ago? And where do you think group piano is going in the future?
1: Oh, that's a great question. I mean, I'm starting year 30 at Georgia Southern, and the the way I teach my piano classes now is literally nothing like how I was teaching them 30 years ago. I mean, for one, I'm in a lot bigger room. I have a lot nicer, newer equipment. Technology has been a huge change. So the way I present and teach a lot of things, I now use a lot of technology And we're able to do a lot of things as a group that we didn't, we we used to could not do. So the way I teach, the way I present things is completely different. The curriculum has changed a lot and there's more focus on like functional skills that our music majors need and less on being able to play your scales hands together at a certain speed and and all of this. It, It used to be a lot more of a traditional approach But our music majors really, they don't need that as much as they just need to be able to function at the keyboard within their profession. And so I think the curriculum has been, in a good way, adjusting and adapting more and more to the needs of these students in our classes. And I know my curriculum has changed. My requirements have changed. And like I said, the way I teach the class has changed. I can't think of anything hardly that's the same as the way I used to teach the class. And actually going back to before I started at Georgia Southern in the 19, early 1980s, when I was working on my master's at Bowling Green. And when we just had these little tiny keyboards and I was cranking out these purple dittos and you smell the ink and all that. We had an overhead projector in the room. I mean, writing on a chalkboard, All, all that disappeared decades ago. So, you know, things have been changing an awful lot.
0: Thank you for walking us through that progression and that change and uh, giving us a bit of perspective of how we got to where we are today. Tom, this has been a really fun conversation. I I've really enjoyed speaking with you and meeting you. You just come across as such a joyful and passionate and fun person. So I can imagine what you are like in the classroom and your students are obviously very blessed to have you. We are so blessed to have you in the state of Georgia. Thank you so much for your years and years of service not just in GMTA and MTNA. So thank you for your continued service to to our profession and to the music world. With that, I wish you happy teaching and happy students.